we're going to start in kind of a weird place. I, I just want to make sure we're all on the same page here. Some people do surface analyses of things. That's not really me. Lord knows I've done that, but you know that's not my my wheelhouse. That's not my norm. Some people do in-depth looks at things. That's also not me. That's a, And you're probably thinking, you don't do in-depth looks? No, I really don't. In-depth is when you could take a single scene and spend an entire 20-minute video just discussing this one scene, or one song, or one boss fight, and you just spend 30 minutes discussing and analyze that one thing. That's truly going in-depth. Me, I'm kind of in the middle of those two things. I'm trying to be as in-depth as I can, but I don't tend to go really far into the nitty-gritty, uh, usually. Just wanted to get that out there. There are other substantially better Bloodborne YouTubers. I mean, I'm not even a YouTuber in general, let alone a Bloodborne YouTuber. So if you really want an in-depth analysis of Bloodborne, go find someone else. Because I'm not the place to go for that. All right, let's, let's talk about the game. Anybody who knows me knows that this is that I've had an interesting history with the with the Souls series in general, the Souls Borns, and you may or may not know that this is not our first time playing one of these games for the show. In fact, I've played Dark Souls one and two and three, as well as Sekiro, all on well, excuse me, almost all of that was on camera. But the only other game we did an actual video for, a pre-recorded video, was for Dark Souls one, and that was years ago. So my opinions and perspectives have changed slightly. I was really hoping we would be able to actually get all the way through Bloodborne without cheating. Unfortunately, we got all the way to the Orphan. That's all I'm going to say for spoiler's sake. We got to the Orphan boss fight, and while I managed to get it pretty far down, I think I got like 20% or something like that was my record, I realized that we were just going to be stuck there doing that for hours again, and... You know, at a certain point it's like, alright, you know what? You win, game. I give up. We got all the way there. So what I did was I asked a couple people to help me out, and they came in, and we fought the boss together. So shout-outs really quick to Ginger Overseer and Primark the Mage for helping me to defeat the freaking Orphan. And you might be thinking, wow, that sounds terrible, Lord. Did you at least have fun? So that's an interesting question. Obviously, the review is going to be a lot more in-depth than anything I'm going to say right here, but the gameplay axis of this game is fascinating to discuss. Because on the one hand, it's this amazing, incredible... Wonderful level design, excellent encounter design, excellent itemization, multiple paths for progression, clear design thought into what should be where and why in order to all, at all points in time inform the thing. And, and then there's the parts of the game that are not that. On the one hand, you have uh, the Vicar Amelia, which is actually probably my favorite boss. It's maybe not my actual favorite, but it's definitely up there. Or um, or even the Maria fight or something, you know, even though that fight frustrated me, but that's for unrelated reasons. Um, or, you know, one of the amazing, incredible boss battles, right? Like, and, and I get it. So many people have told me over the years, I myself have experienced over the years, that that rush of having successfully accomplished a boss fight. It's an awesome feeling. It's an awesome sensation. And then you have Rom. Now, Rom's not the only example, but I specifically point to Rom because I think most Bloodborne players can agree that the Rom fight sucks. <laughs> Feel free... To disagree in the comments below. Actually, I do have a question for you there, because I imagine, and I'm actually curious, several of you had a similar experience. Bloodborne is a kind of a game that is just as frustrating as it is awesome. Right? Like, and sometimes you're like, oh, uh, why am I doing this? And then the rest of the time you're like, yes, this is awesome. Uh, and that's pretty much my overall experience with this one. That's why the review, the actual score for the gameplay axis was a plus nine, which sounds good, and it is. 
But that's because it's it was something like plus 30, 30 and some change to gameplay, and negative 20 and some change to gameplay, because there's just, there was just so much irritating, and then we go to awesome, and then we go to irritating, and then we go to awesome, and it's just... Ah! I, 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 I thought about calling this the Souls effect, because several other Dark Souls games have this, but then I realized we actually already kind of have a phrase for this. It's the GTA effect, isn't it? How many of you know what I'm talking about? Before I even go into it, right? Like, you play a Grand Theft Auto game, and it's like, yeah, I'm having fun. And then you hit that one mission, right? It's it's the same general concept. Oh, my God. I'm getting off topic. I did find the combat here pretty enjoyable. I would say in... <laughs> In similar fashion. I wanted to use, say that to set the tone, because a lot of what I'm going to be doing is praising and then bashing in pretty much the same sentence. So the combat felt better and worse than Sekiro in exactly the same thing. I, I mentioned that because Sekiro is probably my favorite overall Soulsborns, not counting Jedi Fallen Order, if you're going to call, count that. Because uh, I, I love the stealth, and I love the maneuverability, and I love how the flow of combat was, and there's all sorts of things that that game did very, very well. But this game felt better in several ways. Like, the actual combat has this wonderful weight to it. The weapon variety is awesome. And there's so so many different uh, ways and strategies that you can go through. And yet, at the same time, there's not really any builds. I mean, there kind of are. I mean, you know, you can kind of do that with the blood. You can be a blood build and, and shoot people to death. Or you can be big on the heavy two-hander. Or you can try to be a, a quick, you know, whatever. Uh, you can be arcane. You can try to be arcane build. Have fun with that, by the way. <laughs> That's, that's hard mode in a nutshell. But there's not really builds in the Souls sense. You know, in a Souls game, there's all kinds of builds and all kinds of different combinations of equipment and stat spread that allows you to vary up your style. That's what I mean by builds, right? It's, it's like, for those of you who have never heard me use that term, it's like playing Magic the Gathering or something similar. You know, you, it, the, the, the build of the deck is part of the gameplay, and that's definitely a Souls thing, not quite a Bloodborne thing. But... Despite that comment, despite that negativity, there's still a lot of fun with the different weapon types. One of the things I did at a certain point of the game was I said, okay, we've got, we're going we're gonna to bank some souls. I know they're not called souls, they're called blood echoes or something, but whatever, bear, bear with me. We we're going to bank some souls, and we're going to run around, and we're going to try out all the different weapons. And make sure, just see what we think of them. Just just try them out, get a feel for them, because they all have different arcs. You know, some attack like this, some attack like this, some go straight up, some just kind of go like this. Some have really tiny arcs, some have no reach at all, but they attack very quickly. Uh, some, uh, when you do the switch attack, it, it's like, and then the switch goes way out. Getting a feel for that and getting a vibe for that is probably one of the better aspects of enjoyability when it came to the gameplay. And I, for the, those curious, I settled on Ludwig's sword. Not the Moonlight sword, not the one from the DLC. The one, the one you get much earlier, the one you just buy for 20 grand or whatever. And that was my sword for the whole game. And we did some good stuff with it. You know, you get a feel for it and you get a feel for how it attacks and when it attacks and when you should do what. And everything was cool. And other than confirmation clicking causing me to die because of buffering, it was pretty awesome. That's great, and I love the way the fact that the game allows you to do that. I also love most of the boss fights, as I think I already em emphasized. Most of the boss fights, the really good boss fights, they're not just, oh, I'm not going to kill you, but instead there's this, okay, 
So I mentioned Vicar Amelia was one of my favorite fights. And one of the things I love about that fight is there's so many ways through the fight, so many different methods and approaches you can use to try and fight her. You can try to chop off her limbs. You can try to smash the necklace she's holding on to. You can try to interrupt her heel. You can try to just ignore all that. You could set her on fire. You can use a beast weapon, a serrated weapon, which the game doesn't tell you about, in order to just try and do the extra damage. Or you can beast pellet your way through it and so forth and so on. And most of the, and, and I know that some of that sounds like that's more on your side of things. But boss fights like Amelia were pretty specifically designed, and clearly designed, to allow for those multiple strategies. By contrast, there are some bosses which were made more binary. You have to do X in order to progress, right? Looking at you, Rom. Rom technically has two strategies. So that's just... The less we say about the Rom fight, the better, honestly. Oh my god, I hated that fight so much. I hated that fight so much, we did almost everything else that was possible to do before we finally settled on doing the Rom fight. I was like, okay, fine, let's just do the Rom fight. Anyways, <clears throat> anybody else, any other ROM haters, which funny, what really bothers me is as much as I bash the ROM fight from a gameplay axis, it's great from a story axis. There's a lot of wonderful storytelling in there. And that's, I think that's the next thing I want to segue into. Uh, I know this is still kind of the gameplay part of the video, but the game, I've talked so much about how important context is to game design. Let me use my favorite example, if you'll forgive me for a moment. Super Mario Brothers 1. Now, you're probably thinking, oh, yeah, sure, what story is there in Super Mario Bros. 1? Not a lot of story, and I, and I try not to use that word because it's misleading, but there's a whole lot of context in Super Mario Bros. 1. Because you're there and you see the mushrooms, and there's the grass in the background, and the underground thing, and the pipe in the water, all of those elements of visual design all help to give you an idea of what you're doing and why. Now, obviously, Super Mario Bros. 1 is an extremely bare-bones example of that, but I use that as my example because even such a basic game that came out in the early 80s still uses this concept into good effect. If you want to know what the opposite looks like, look at just about any other uh, indie game out there. A lot of indie games do this, where none of that context is there. So it's a puzzle platformer, and maybe even a good puzzle platformer, but it's literally just geometry. Nothing else. You've probably seen a game like that, if, if, you, if you know what I'm talking about. So there's just a plank slate, and there's just a triangle, and you're a square, and you do this. And It may be a very competent game, but absent that context, it is severely lacking. That's why this is so important to gameplay, because it helps to invest and pull you into the game you're playing. And let's be clear, Bloodborne does that in spades, to finally tie it back into the game I'm actually talking about. You know, you walk into... Uh, let's let, let's let's pull us a specific example here. I mean, I could talk about the Maria fight. Obviously, everyone knows about the Maria fight, but it, there, uh, I could talk about the Rom fight because that certainly is a good one. Let's talk. Let's go specifically with the Gascoigne fight. It's nice and early, and it really helps to emphasize everything that's going on. What we see is this dude. He looks of the same general style as we do in several ways, so that already implies certain things about who he is and why he is. Um, and why he's going nuts, he eventually turns into this giant werewolf thing, which is kind of indicative of what the beast curse is, and what it's like to give into the bloodlust of thereof, and we're fighting amongst a giant graveyard, and he's just in the middle of killing someone, and oh, by the way, if you're paying any kind of attention, um, his wife's corpse is right over there, and you can loot an item from her. <laughs> All of these little elements... And a lot of the bosses do that. Again, I'm not going to go down the list. If you think about it, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. So many of the bosses tell their stories simply by the arena, the animations, and the fight themselves. And that helps to inform what the heck is going on. There are some cases where that's not really true. There's the fight that I like to call um yum 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 I actually don't remember her real name. It's the, the end of the frontier, the Nightmare Frontier fight. 
giant brain thing with the lasers, you know that one. Um, I, I was calling her Omdi 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 Om as a joke, and I, as a consequence, I never remembered her actual name. That was actually a good fight, but ironically, it was so absent of context that I don't have much to say about it. And that, I'm just using that as a contrast, because there's only a few fights that are absent context in this game. Um, and then that, that was one of them. It's like, well, they're there. I think it's a she. They're there, and they're angry. They attack us on sight, which is very rare for the Great Ones. Most of the Great Ones wait for us to attack first. Um, yeah, that's about all I got. One of the things this game I love does, that's wonderful grammar, is it's got that rally system where you can actually try to d get health back by hitting the enemy that just hit you. Or rather, it doesn't even have to be the enemy. Just, you took damage, you got the yellow health bar, you attack, and you get some of that health back. That is an awesome system. And I think it could be fine-tuned to be even better, to be completely honest. I'm curious if Elden Ring is going to do anything with that. But it's awesome for two reasons. First and foremost, it allows for recovery mechanics. Now, I know that sounds like a strange thing to comment on, and I don't want to get into this kind of discussion, but I tend to lean towards the idea that recovery mechanics in game design are a good thing. The idea, allowing you to screw up and recover from it. That's, that's what that is in, in just simplistic form is you've made a mistake on a boss fight or a level or a jump or whatever, and here's a little bit of a way to try and recover from that. A truly good recovery mechanic is something that doesn't just, okay, here, let's undo that. That would just be a save state at that point. A truly good recovery mechanic is something that allows you to do something. Maybe you have to hit this button, or maybe you have to be prepped for this, or maybe you have to do this input thing, or maybe you have to be paying attention and go the right way with it, or whatever. And in so doing, you... The player are actually the one recovering, and it makes you feel much more awesome for doing it, because it's like, ugh, I've been hit, but I come back from it. And that's that's a great feeling, right? And that feeling is one of the things Bloodborne does really, really well because of the rally mechanic. I do think it could be tweaked just a little bit, maybe making it so that you can uh, change around your gear a little bit. Maybe you can do this, because I didn't experiment with gems all that much, and I barely did the Chalice Dungeons. Um, but maybe making it so that you can elongate how long it'll stage orange, right? Or maybe try to do the Earthbound thing. If you don't know what the Earthbound thing is, in Earthbound, uh, Earthbound actually kind of has a rally mechanic, just not quite. In Earthbound, you take the hit, and then your HP just kind of slowly goes down until it reaches the point where the hit was at, right? So rather than what, what Bloodborne, because what Bloodborne does is a little bit different. What Bloodborne does, Hoo-ah! then there's about a two or three second pause, and then it just goes away, right? Very quickly. I think having giving that extra little time of, well, okay, 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 and basically giving you at the same timer, but a more granular timer rather than just a binary, you have this amount of time to recover or else. I think that little little tweaks like that, I think, could really help the system. Um, the nature of uh, a lot of aspects of this game are really awesome. I'm just going to kind of brush over a lot of that, but I do want to talk about a couple things specifically. You've probably heard, if you've gotten to this part of the video, you've probably heard of the Bloodborne 60 FPS meme. Allow me to formally say, where the hell is my Bloodborne 60 FPS? Now, I'm going to clarify that just a second. First of all, I know not everyone's into 60 FPS, and that's fine. But this game was inconsistent 24 FPS. To be clear, and I know, I'm literally not joking because I can prove it, this is Dramamine. If you don't know what Dramamine is, this is an anti-nausea. 
The reason it's right here is because this game literally made me nauseous playing it. That is not a joke and that is not a meme. Because of the, the, the slow frame rate and because of how inconsistent that frame rate is. Which leads me to point two. This game is extremely poorly optimized. I'm playing on a, I was playing on a PS4 Pro with a custom SSD installed and it was still pretty bad loads times and very hangy at multiple times. Oh my god. You get to the lecture hall with all the students and the game just goes down to like three or four FPS. Not even joking. I, I have video evidence. I don't have to, to, to make, make the, make a lie or anything like that here. Give us an optimization patch, for God's sakes. I'd like it to come out on other things. PS5, PC, that'd be nice. You know, I'm, I'm with that. But just optimize the sucker. It's not like you can't. And I get it. Bloodborne was an early PS4 title. That's how that works. But usually games, and, and this has happened for many PS4 games, they would get an optimization patch, a pro patch, to take advantage of the PS4 Pro and the increased hardware. And we didn't get that for Bloodborne for some reason. And for some reason, we still haven't gotten a port of this game, even though it's been however many years now. Question mark? To this day, I don't understand that. I, I know, ironically, a leak slash rumor started circling literally yesterday, as of the time of recording this, that they're totally going to do a PS5 version of Bloodborne. We'll see. I mean, they're just the Demon Souls, so why not? Anyways, I wanted to talk about boss design, just one more thing, because I wanted to talk about one of the things that I do enjoy most about this is it really makes you think at all times. Uh, one of the things I've started doing more on the streams is I've started trying to talk out my strategy so that my viewers don't think I'm just sitting here mashing buttons and to make it more engaging, you know, to, 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 in, to in, be more of like a radio voice that's kind of reciting, and then he goes, you know, just trying to add to the experience of watching. I've gotten some positive feedback on that, but it also helps me to concentrate a bit because as I think about it, I really process what, what's going through my mind a million miles an hour as I'm actually fighting one of these bosses. It's like, okay, so let's go to the Maria fight because I remember the Maria fight very well. Because I spent two hours and 43 minutes on her. That's the frustration part I mentioned earlier. Oh my god. Anyways, Maria, right? So, she favors her right side. And that's the way I'm going to start with that. Because I could talk about her attacks and how she mutates and she gets the blood and increases her rage. And she gets the fire, which increases the, the, the hot damage, which I'll talk about in a second because that's a stagger thing. No, no, no. Let's start with the most wonderful part of that fight. And that is that she favors her right. Most of her attacks come in like this, or come in like this, and in one case, actually straight down like that. What that means is the overwhelming majority of her attacks can be successfully dodged by dodging towards her and towards her left, because she's favoring over here, right? This is actually an aspect of real life sword fighting, is, is people will usually favor one side or the other, and so you can try to take advantage of that. And I absolutely did. And in fact, on my successful attempt, one of the things I started doing was I would roll way up on her, because the safest place would be to be right next to her. Because when I'm right next to her, I can see all her animations, and I can know exactly what attack she's going to use, and exactly where I need to be dodging in order to dodge it, and exactly at what time, right? So you get right up next to her, and you roll right past her, and you get one swing in, funk, and you wait. Then you roll right past her, and so forth and so on. And that probably sounds easy. It still took me a few attempts to actually get that once I started doing that strategy. But the point being, that's kind of the stuff I'm talking about when it comes to the boss design. Someone clearly thought about that. Someone clearly was like, okay, hang on. And of course, you know, we have a lot of hunter fights. I actually would argue she's not quite a hunter fight. I mean, she is. Of the two categories of fight, hunter and, and, and beast, she is clearly more hunter. But when I think of the hunter fights, I think of those jackasses who are basically just players, right? Who just run around with a player moveset and player-built stuff. Who, if I'm not mistaken, are actually built using the player character creation. No, she is clearly... A lot more thought was put into her. Um, 
She does uh, wonderful little tells, too, and they're so quiet. I'm actually going to try and emulate one here. I'm going to fail at this a little bit. But there's this one thing where she winds up, and she holds it for a second, and then she does this massive attack. Now, a lot of bosses in these games do that. There's two types of attacks. Really, there's two. There's, I'm going to hit you immediately, and then there's, and smack! And there's that delay, right? If you don't understand why that delay is there, it's because they start moving, and then you dodge, and then you finish dodging, and then they smack you. It's a very common strategy in these games. Um, but she does this really long delay. But what she'll do is she'll pull back, and she'll hold. And she'll just stay there, and then she'll tense, just like this. And that's when she actually does the attack. And you can pay attention to those little animations and be like, ah, blah! And, and just pretty much perfectly dodge everything, because iframes. And take it to phase three. Now, phase three likes to, to circle things around and say, no, 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 screw you. Because in phase three, her attacks leave fire on the ground. I'll freely admit, even my successful attempt on her, I got a little bit lucky, because several times I would get staggered by the fire, because what the fire does is very little damage, and it doesn't even really do much, except it makes you go, huh. And Bloodborne is an animation lock game. If you don't know what that means, that means that once you start an animation, you're, you're locked into it. You cannot animation cancel. Now, there's actually, I know there's an asterisk attached to that, and I myself was able to, to do the immediate dodge roll, whatever that's actually called a few times. But because your animation locked in, huh, you can't do anything for that half second. And so those flames are effectively a stun. They're mezzing you while she gets... But again, I got lucky and she didn't capitulate on that in my final attempt, so I was actually able to kill her. So, woo! Still awesome, right? Still a fun design. Still well done. It's just there's a few other issues. And I, 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 I know I'm going to get bashed for this, but I really do think that this game is a little bit overtuned. And Maria is the perfect example of that. Because I was level 130-something. It was like 30 strength. No, no, it was 30 health, 30 stamina, 50 strength, 30 arcane. That was my setup, right? And I was slowly raising my stamina a little bit more because I wanted to be at the point where I could do three swings and a dodge on one stamina bar, and that's that's what I was working towards. So Maria would two-shot me if she hits me. Now, this is not exclusive to her. I'm just using her as an example because she's probably one of the worst. Actually, the worst example of this is the orphan fight because the orphan fight, oh my god. The orphan fight was actually a really fun, interesting berserker fight and very well designed too. Except for the fact that if you screw up, you die. <laughs> Every time I died, I died because literally something like I dodged in the wrong direction. I knew it. I recognized it immediately. Whoops, I meant to dodge back instead of right, and I'm dead instantly because he just hits that hard. And that's what I mean by the overtuning. Now, I know I'm just going to get all sorts of comments about how much I suck and how I just need to man up and blah, blah, blah. It would be nice to at least have some kind of option to mitigate that. But what about the chalice dungeons, you say? Really? That's the defense. <laughs> we ended up giving one negative for chalice dungeons. And I point that out because most of the people in chat who have actually played Bloodborne substantially more than me, this is my first playthrough, remember, lobbied for substantially more than one negative for the Chalice Dungeons. It, it's the grind dungeon, right? It's you go on there and you grind. The problem is, it, it is so grindy. I never actually unlocked the second Chalice Dungeon, and for the record, I did put some effort into doing that. I just never got the drops I needed off the trash in the first one to unlock the second one. So that's fun. Maybe next time you make an optional grind dungeon, make it a little less frustrating to continue to unlock, because that first dungeon is completely meaningless to me, other than unlocking the second. 
Anyways, I'm getting off topic. I apologize. I could talk about the gameplay of this for all. Let's shift over into story mode, because that's the thing you're here for, right? You want to hear me to give you the in-depth analysis. Well, no, hang on. I just told you. Remember, no in-depth. We're not doing in-depth. It's no, 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 no. Stop, stop. Okay, we're okay. No in-depth. All right. But we are going to talk about this a little bit. I do feel like... One of the things I hear most often is people say that the Souls games have no story. Um, let me, let me, hang on, hear me back. Just double-checking my monitor. I've been having hardware issues, so I'm making sure that everything's recording properly. So if you see me glance over that, that's what I'm doing. I actually hear like three comments pretty much in the same thing. Uh, these games have no story. Uh, yes, they do. You're just not paying attention. Or yes, they do. It's just interpretive. Now, I want to address that first one, the no story thing. As I think I already emphasized by my context comments earlier, that's nonsense. Of course, there's story here. There's plenty of story. I mean, that being said, though, I do have to say it's funny to me, and I actually made this specific comparison during the stream, that much of Bloodborne would take me about as much to summarize as just summarizing what's going on with the dragons in Dark Souls 1. Because Dark Souls 1, specifically, had just this absolutely stupid amount of background lore going to it. Anybody who knows that game knows what I'm talking about, right? But Bloodborne kind of didn't. Bloodborne left a little bit more of that vague. I don't know if that's on purpose, and I don't know if they get credit for it. Because Lovecraftian, right? What's one of the big things? You're supposed to seek out answers for no reason, and you're not supposed to get them. Or if you do get them, you go... I'm not sure... I, I'm, let me go ahead and preface this. If it's not obvious, I didn't enjoy this game. Um, I managed to play through the Dark Souls games by basically putting on the blinders to the lore. I'm aware of the lore, of course. I've studied it, but I did that mostly off-camera. And that's kind of what I did here. You know, I know about the fishing village. I know about the attacks, the research, and how it's probably Gurum who was the first one to make the deal with the, the moon presence in order to set up the thing. And blah, 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 blah. But I also know that a lot of that is super vague and up to interpretation. And how much of that I read is actually codified fact and how much of that is just people's takes on things is actually a question mark. Now, I'm fine with vagueness. I'm fine with interpretive storytelling. Really, that's that's the thing I have the least problem with. The problem I have primarily is so little of the narrative was really being showcased within the game. And I know that's a Souls thing. And we didn't give a negative for it. We decided to walk away from that. But I feel like more presentation would really assist a game like this, in investing someone in it. And Bloodborne specifically, because... And I asked my viewers several times at several points in the good story, so what are we doing? <laughs> One person was like, well, we're seeking the pale blood to awake from the nightmare. Duh. Okay, but what are we doing? Why do we kill uh, Ibrita or what? I can never remember how to pronounce it. Everyone constantly corrects me on how to pronounce it. But, you know, the, the, the great one, if you go through the, the window and then down, you know. The one that was trying to resurrect Rom, maybe the one that was probably being used as as a source of the blood for the experiments that made the celestial emissaries, or as emissaries, emissaries, ambassadors up top. Maybe not actually sure about that. <laughs> Why did we kill her again? But I know this is an old complaint, and I'm only mentioning this because when it comes to because this is an important preface in my opinion. I'm not trying to bash the game. Again, we didn't give a negative for it, because it didn't detract from the narrative. Because the narrative in this game was mostly pushed by the atmosphere. The context thing I kept uh, banging on about. This is that good and bad thing, too. It's, it's going to be a recurring trend. Because going through the game, we always got that vibe and verb of just horrible death, doom, nightmare hell that we were going through. And 
ironically, the further we got into the game, the worse it got. <laughs> you know, you start off and it's like, oh, okay, so this place is clearly plagued and cursed and there's these people out at night and they're freaking out and there's people shut in their homes waiting for the hunt to end and so forth and so on. And okay, so now we're in this nightmare place, which is literally called the Nightmare Frontier. And there's an elder god thing, which is trying, excuse me, a great one, which is trying to kill us for some reason. Okay, so there's these brain things that have eyeballs inside them, and that way they can... You know, it just, it just gets worse the further in we go. But I can't do an analysis of this story in my traditional format. All I could do would be give you an analysis of other people's analysis, of reading up and researching the lore, and then doing my paper on that. And I don't want to do that, and frankly, I don't think that's worth anybody's time. So what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to give you my interpretations. And I hope that's going to be sufficient for you. I've been kind of sitting on this. I, I hinted at this a few times on stream, because I do actually have some notes about this. Um, one of the most obvious themes of the game, uh, one of the most overt themes, is the theme of offspring. We've got literal offspring, right? You know, we've, we've got the orphan. <laughs> but there's also uh, the Queen of Yarn and uh, Murgo, for example. And we've also got metaphorical offspring, which is more in the form of, uh, hang on, please tell me I wrote down the name. Yeah, there we go, Willem. You're probably thinking, who's, who's Willem's theoretical offspring? Lawrence. So offspring in the sense of baby from body, which there's plenty of that, but also offspring in the sense of you are my um, legacy, I think is actually the word I want to go there. And I find myself wondering if this game as a whole, as I'm saying this out loud, I'm, I'm suddenly disagreeing with myself. Maybe I should use the word legacy instead of the word offspring. Because while many of the great ones clearly want to procreate with us, I mean, there's the poor woman that you save in the chapel, for God's sakes. And, you know, the aforementioned Queen of Yarnum. And, of course, the people are constantly trying to become that. And there's the orphan and the, the many, many fish people around the orphan. But a lot of the game is about the follow the follow through of what has already come, right? I mean, granted, this is dipping a little bit into that lore that I said I wouldn't touch, but most of the stuff has already happened by the time the game begins. Almost everything has already come to. This is straight up system shock, right? You you wake up, uh huh, and you're on the von Braun. Sorry, system shock too, and everything's already happened. And you're trying to piece it together after the fact, right? It's one of those type of stories. Because Willem took, went to the fishing village and probably took Maria, and Maria probably killed lots of people there, and they probably made the deal with the, the, uh, the Moon Presence, and Gurham probably started this whole thing and this whole nightmare thing, and blah, 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 blah. You know, all of that happened forever ago. My opinion, probably in the centuries range, but who knows? Dreams are weird. And then, of course, Willem did his whole research and tried to figure out his stuff, and pr because of the fact that um, Kos or Cosm, I can't remember which it is for some strange reason, had this thing where that's connected to Rom and how Rom used to be a person, a woman specifically, and was granted these eyes and is being effectively the, the legacy of what Willem's research was and may or may not be holding back the thing. I'm, I'm just kind of going off in the weeds, but you get my overall point. There's just this nonstop sense of all this stuff that has already happened. The church, it's not even just the healing church already existed, was founded by Lawrence, there's that legacy thing again, and then screwed up. It's the fact that the healing church has already split and in many cases, there's there's this one place, oh, I can't remember the name of the place, but there's one place where, where members of the, the two factions that split up after the Healing Church have just massacred each other, right? It's already done. It's already happened. 
we're coming in like, uh, yeah, 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 okay, uh, this is a mess, that's pretty weird, gonna have to, gonna have to sort this out a little bit, except we don't even know what we're doing. Now, I know that in the ending, we can choose to leave the dream, spoilers, Oh, sorry, spoilers from this point on. I've obviously spoiled the crap out of everything at this point, but whatever. Spoiler warning. You can leave the dream, or we can cycle it again, which is probably the bad ending. Or we can become the master of the dream. Okay, cool. So we do actually accomplish something in the end, but I'm curious at which point we realized what the hell we were doing. Like, what possessed us in lore to, to consume the three umbilical cords, right? By the way, I tend to lean towards the idea that the uh, the squid ending is the good ending. Because in the ending where you leave, well, you're still at threat. You're still in Yarnum, and the curse is still a thing, and the nightmare's still going. But in the squid ending, you're the one who's now the anchor for the nightmare, which is the first thing I want to talk about. I've finally come back around. Anchors. One of the things that... So this is... From this point on, this is all interpretation, okay? From what I'm seeing in this game, there's a whole lot of anchors. And each anchor is specifically the thing that they birth each dream out of. Now, I'm going to use the word dream. The game goes out of its way to not answer whether or not these are each of different pocket dimension, or this is just one large pocket dimension and you're in different locations within it. Because both work, right? You could be you know, doing the layer thing, like this is Inception, or you could be doing some persons in New Jersey and some persons in China, right? I don't know, probably this is China. Give me a break. So... Given this perspective and given this mentality, I lean more towards the it's one overall area and it's just sectioned off a little bit based on the needs thereof. But each section is clearly something that uh, forms a... It forms a an appearance, a, a, a form. I, I'm trying to think of another word here. What's a better word than form? It manifests differently based on who the anchor is, is what I'm trying to go for, right? And there's some evidence for this. Now, we know the Nightmare of Mensis was anchored on Mensis, right? And so, uh, maybe, actually, sorry, I shouldn't say that, right? But we're in the realm of interpretation. So, <clears throat> by my interpretation, uh, the, the Nightmare of Mensis was anchored on Mensis. And therefore, that place was formed based on and by him. And given Mensis's connection to the church, uh, not the church, sorry, sorry, the choir, the choir, and how they were specifically doing some of the most horrifically evil experiments with regards to becoming great ones and whatnot, that place is formed in a manner that informs that. You've got the, the winter enemies, which are the first enemy in the game, and you've got, uh, you know, this, that's where Murgo's hanging out, probably has been hanging out for a long time, that's where the wet nurse is, and the wet nurse probably was actually the person that birthed Murgo, and I know you're thinking, Lord, that's not what a wet nurse is. Yeah, but when you kill the wet nurse, Murgo just dies immediately. As if you cut off the umbilical cord, so to speak. There's one other creature and individual that follows the same pattern, actually. The uh, the woman, whose name I can't think of, you can save, the one in the dress. And she gives birth to a little grotesque thing. And if you kill one, you kill the other. Sound familiar? So I'm thinking what we were seeing there was a was the very, very beginnings of what eventually became Murgo and the Wet Nurse, my opinion. But you get the idea. All this stuff is built on that anchor. So that's what the Night Vermensis is anchored on. Uh, and we, of course, see the the the, the Hunter's Nightmare, which is Ger uh, uh, German. Sorry, I, I know I'm pronouncing his name wrong. I apologize. But 
the G-Man, the first hunter. That's his nightmare. He was the anchor for creating that particular territory, given that he obviously was involved with the fishing hamlet. And he was, in, and if you pay attention, I mean, the whole thing follows through all the events that he himself was present for and arguably was the beginning of everything. Many, many other people have commented that we kind of go through history in reverse, you know, just making our way back through history as we go through the DLC. Because we start off in the present day with all the, the hunters going crazy and blood mad. And then there's Ludwig and it's like, oh, okay. And then we go back to the medical ward where they were experimenting with people and trying to get the liquid in the brain because that has something to do with insight and we don't understand what metaphor is. And then we go a little bit further back and there's Maria who's refusing to let us go any further because she probably was involved in this. She probably killed herself. But it's okay. The real life Maria has probably been dead for years upon years upon years. And we know that Garam has a bit of a thing for Maria because we've seen the doll. And then we go back and we go into the fishing village, which is effectively where this particular chain began. And most likely the death of Kaz, or if you prefer Kazum, was most likely connected to the original pact that was made by the original hunters and therefore Garam itself. And you get the idea. So he's, he's the anchor for that, right? Cool. Now, who's the anchor for the whole dream? The whole thing? That's a little bit trickier. And the more I started thinking about it, the more I realized that I don't think there's actually an anchor for the whole thing per se. What I think is that the whole dream is a factory. At least it's intended to be a factory. Might be a better way to put it. And our job, and why I picked the squid ending, is because we are taking over the factory or leaving the factory. That's the that's the wake up thing. That's let him, let him kill us and we're done ending. This place... Uh, one of Lovecraftian's things, Lovecraftian, that's not his name, one of Lovecraft's things, either in real life or in his works, depending on how you interpret that, was that he really actually believed that dreams were a literal physical place. Which is a little weird, but, you know, what are you going to do? That's just that's just strange, but walk away from it. Um, and thus, the idea that these dreams are actually physically present and you're actually going to them, sure, there's also several hints, looking at you, Mikolash, of the idea that once you leave the dream, you have no memory of what happened in it. Okay, that's that's a little bit believable. I don't like that idea personally, but I tend to like actually keeping my memory in general. So, we know that the place exists, and it's just this dream, and this is just kind of its own structure, its own location. So how many of these events happened in the real world? Eh, let, me, let me walk that back. How many of these events happened in the in Earth? How many of these events happened in the dream? Because remember, the dream is a physical, tangible place. So things that happened there would have relevance and significance, and they would be important, right? They, they would be something... It, it's not like... It, I, I mentioned this because the, the reason the trope is called it's all just a dream is what that phrase actually means is none of this mattered. That's what it's all just a dream trope means. That's not what this is at all. The stuff that happens in this dream actually has... Uh, sorry. It is my interpretation that the stuff in this dream actually has tangible, real impact on things. That it is very likely that many of these people who die or otherwise destroyed within this dream either wake up or have been lost here for too long in order to have someone to wake up to. Mikolaj being the perfect example. He's been dead for years, but his dream keeps going. Or So in other words, his mind has effectively left his body and his body is rotted without him. That gold concept, right? But I'm, I'm getting a little bit off topic because I want to talk about the factory thing. Why? Why a factory? I mean, it's it's almost like a factory is this thing where you take in raw, unprocessed goods, like uh, new people who will come here, trying to come to this town, trying to get a blood transfusion and therefore get connected to the dream, and then end up going through and participating in a hunt with no idea what they're doing. 
There's that narrative thing earlier I mentioned. And no idea what's going on. And then they just kind of either die or become strong enough, either through example or through terror, in order to actually survive long enough to eventually become blood-crazed. And oh, that one didn't quite work out, so we'll go ahead and work on processing the next one. I think that what's going on here is the actual entity which has been designing this whole thing pretty much from word go, that'd be the moon entity or the moon, whatever it's called, uh, the moon, uh, I, it's MD, I can't remember what the D stands for, moon jackass, uh, moon om nom nom, on one of the endings. Has, uh, has set this hole up for whatever reason. Now, what's interesting is even in my own interpretations, this could branch out in three different broad categories. Good, neutral, and evil. That's a dismissive thing. But hear me out for a second. So, good. Maybe what this thing, what the moon entity is trying to do is like, okay, so we've got the great ones and they exist within the plane, but bad stuff has been happening for a long time and we need to put a stop to this. So it has been going through and processing person after person after person through the process of this factory, through all of the things that happen here and the slow development of insight and how insight slowly changes your mind to think in a different fashion, trying to find the one person who will actually be thinking exactly what the moon entity needs to be thinking in order to just wipe the slate clean. Once the moon entity actually does this, then, well, its obvious intent would be to embrace that entity and say, ah, you are now mine, I claim all that you are, and now I get to reform the dream based on my concepts. The moon entity effectively taking over, for all intents and purposes, all the other great ones being sublimated or dead because of our actions and because of what has happened. This then serves to explain why we throw a wrench into that affair if we take the umbilical cords, because it tries to embrace us and fails, and it's like, oh, well, you're this horrible alien thing. You're trying to usurp it from me. This is my dream. Thank you very much. So we try to take the dream from it. And in the process, we succeed. And then we are now the ones completely, supremely in charge of the dream, in charge of the factory. And what we want to do with it is up to us. After all, the factory was something it set up. But I'm sorry, I'm getting a little off topic. I didn't explain why that's good. So the idea of good could be just kind of, you know, oh my god, the Great Ones have been messing with this forever, and it's led to horrible nightmares, death, and the, the killing of people, and people being sucked. We need to stop this, so let's find the one person who can kill off all the other things, then I'll take over and etch-a-sketch everything, and we'll just start over. The neutral thing is that the entity has no thought in the strictest sense of the word, but is instead going on pure instinct. Think a vacuum cleaner, or a Roomba, if you prefer. That's just going around, and that's the general level of mentality I ascribe to the neutral motivation, the idea that it's literally just doing what it's supposed to, because that's what it's supposed to be doing. There's also the evil interpretation, which you notice that while these are mutually exclusive because these are motivations, the in the actual action doesn't change at all, depending, because the evil concept is, oh, I want to take over for bad reasons. I want to take, all these other great ones can go to hell, and I'm just going to just kill and destroy and maim, and eventually I'm going to finally find the, my one perfect sample and consume it, and then I am going to run the dream, and this is going to be mine. And... You can see how the motivation changes the perspective a little bit, but doesn't actually alter the nature of the factory. The cycle of running this eldritch, 
this Eldritch processing plant to slowly change and alter those who go through it. And because everyone's different, everyone alters in a different way. Hence it trying to look for the one entity that actually is going to be what it needs. Let me check my notes really quick, make sure I'm not missing anything. But I think that's pretty much everything. Um... Yeah, no, here, here's where I talk about how insight kind of leads into this, because, you know, the idea that we produce the particular type of blood, just seeing one of the bosses produces insights and alters how we see things, alters how we think, we can hear Murgo, you know. Um, I think that's actually it. So, of course, given that theory, and it is just a theory, a lore theory, and I'm sued. That's one of the reasons why I tend to like the squid ending, even though it's actually kind of a bad ending in presentation, because it is a bad ending in presentation. But I, I prefer that ending of the three, because in that case, we not only shut down the factory and, and reset everything to zero, which you do in two of the endings, but we're in charge now. And because this is an interpretive story, we get to decide what that means. And preventing these kind of horrific travesties of existence, of, of trying to massacre people and experiment on people and, and pour liquid into people's brains and dig inside of people's skulls to find their extra eyeballs, all that's gone. Instead, we can just kind of be like, okay, here, it's just a dreamscape. Nothing more. You go here when you dream, and then you leave. There's no eldritch abominations, and there's no piles of corpses that are still alive. There's no Gene Roddenberry banging at the gate. You know, it's just, it's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's clean. <laughs> We're done. And that's my take on the Bloodborne story. I'm actually really curious uh, of your guys' theories. If you want to share them, if you feel like it, in the comments below. And I'm curious to hear what you think of my horrible, horrible theory. I do hope you've enjoyed this rumination and enjoyed the stream as a whole. I'll see you next time.